Well, good evening. You can turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, it's been a little while since we were here. Uh, two weeks ago, we were studying in this chapter, and uh, last week we had our worship evening, where we had an entire evening of praise and worship, so uh, we, we skipped a week of, of Bible study in order to have that. But going back a couple of weeks ago, I was sharing with you how one of the reasons Peter addresses a number of these issues in this section of the book uh, on, on submission is because some of the criticism that was being made against the church had to do with false charges that were made by the enemies of the cross and by those who didn't understand Christianity. And one of the charges that was made against them is that they wanted to rebel against the government. They wanted to overthrow the government. And this came from a misunderstanding about the phrase, Jesus is Lord. So they would say, Jesus is Lord, and of course, the common phrase for the Roman world was, Caesar is Lord. And so they would hear, Jesus is Lord, and they would say, you see, they're revolutionaries, they want to overthrow the government. And of course, we know that the Lord himself, when speaking to Pontius Pilate, talked about his kingdom not being of this world. So that was just a false charge. Uh, then there were the issues of slaves, and a lot of slaves had become Christians, and because the early apostles taught about freedom in Christ, they heard about freedom in Christ and they said, see, these people are telling the slaves they're free and they're starting slave rebellions. Isn't it amazing? Fake news isn't anything new. And then finally, and of course that wasn't true either, uh, we talked a lot about this a few weeks ago. They weren't uh, in favor of slavery, but they also weren't in favor of slave rebellion either. Uh, then you had this last charge that Peter addresses here in chapter 3, and it was this. Not only are the Christians trying to rebel against the government and upset all of the authority of government, uh, not only are they trying to get slaves to rebel against their masters, you know what else? They're trying to get wives to rebel against their husbands. They're trying to create chaos in the home and destroy the Greco-Roman world by destroying the home. Now, this came about because when the early gospel writers talked about men and women, they talked about men and women being equal before Christ. And, of course, this was a, the ancient world where they didn't consider women equal to men. Now, Christianity preaches the gospel, and in the gospel, all men and women, Jew and Gentile, free and slave, are all considered the same and equal before God. But when the enemies of the cross and the enemies of the gospel would hear this, they would assume, of course, well, you see, they're telling wives that they're over their husbands and that they shouldn't submit to them. So you shouldn't submit to the government, you shouldn't submit to your master, and you shouldn't submit to your husband. And you can imagine this caused all kinds of problems in the church. So as Peter is writing to a group of people, some of whom are being persecuted because of these lies, he's clear we are not telling you to rebel against the government. We are not saying that slaves should rebel against their masters. Those are the last two studies that we looked at in this chapter and in this series. This evening now, we look at the relationship between wives and husbands. And of course, he talks about how wives are called to submit to their husbands. And it's in that context that we've already established that we learn something about the roles of men and women in marriage. 
And with that, let's pray and get into our study. We'll be looking at chapter 3 in 1 Peter, verses 1 through 7, and the roles of men and women in marriage. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that you've called us to this place and you've given us an opportunity, an opportunity to praise you, an opportunity to worship, an opportunity to have fellowship with one another and to study your word. And now, Lord, as we open your word in this section, may you make it clear to us how this applies to us today, not just then, but today. And how, as men and women, we're, we're called to love one another and how your word teaches us to love. Give us wisdom and understanding as we continually learn about submission, not just to you, not just to our authorities, but also to one another. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's start by looking at the theme of this evening, which is submit yourself to your spouse. Submit to your spouse. Now, the first one he talks about in a marriage is the wife. Again, that was because they were being accused of telling wives not to submit to their husbands, not to listen to their husbands, uh, which, again, wasn't true at all. Look at verses 1 and 2. In 1 Peter chapter 3, wives, in the same way, now that's in the same way that you're to submit if you're a slave to your master, in the same way that you're to submit the governing authorities. In the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, that is an encouragement not to be quiet and to be silent, but to be submissive. And there's a difference. I think a lot of people over the centuries have wrongfully accused the Christian church of being chauvinistic simply because of scriptures that say, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, of course, Paul taught on this subject as well. And in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22, he And and 21, he begins by saying, submit yourselves to one another. Not just husbands to wives or wives to husbands, but to one another. There's an attitude of submission, and it's because you love someone that you submit, you yield, and that's how relationships work. But first, he talks about being submissive to your husband as a wife. Now, I mentioned already, Paul talked extensively about this in Ephesians 5 and also in Colossians 3, so... Peter deals with it briefly here, but it's really the same teaching. It was the duty in this culture, it was the duty of every wife to obey her husband, but respect is a matter of the heart. Respect is the matter of the heart. You can obey, but if you don't respect someone, it's not the same thing. You can just do what someone tells you to do. Well, a lot of us do that at work. A lot of us, you know, have to do that in certain circumstances. Like, for example, when I go to the store and I have to wear a mask, you know, I, I obey. I'm not so sure I love, I love it, but, you know, I do what I got to do, right? You can do the right thing and do what you're supposed to, but the attitude in your heart isn't necessarily one of respect. In, case, in the case of marriage, it's not enough to just obey. There really needs to be respect. That's a matter of the heart. And what he gets to here, what Peter really addresses, is that our behavior speaks louder than any words that we could possibly speak. Our behavior And that's what he's addressing. Not that you can't speak, but he's saying this, wives. He says, be submissive to your husband so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words. Won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. 
So this has to do with character. This has to do with how you live and how you act and how that's much more impactful on someone who doesn't know Jesus than just what you say. It makes me think of a a wife who might be married to an unbelieving husband and how every day she'll leave her Bible out on the table or little notes or, you know, to just sort of influence her husband. But that's one thing. It's another thing to just bother him and badger him and nag him and argue with him. That's not going to get you anywhere. That doesn't get anyone anywhere. No one wants to feel that kind of experience. No one wants to be treated that way or spoken to that way. No one. But our behavior speaks louder than any words we could possibly speak. And he gives us two words, and I want us to hone in on these two words. Purity is the first one. Purity. Now, purity means free of carnality, that is, fleshly things. It means to live a chaste life, a modest life, and a life without fault. Purity. That should be a part of our lives, but certainly wives trying to influence their husbands who may not be believers. And then there's reverence. And reverence is this, it's respect. It's being respectful, it's showing admiration, treating someone with respect. That's always the most impactful way to treat someone who doesn't know the Word or the Lord. You know, one of the things, Christians, we make a mistake sometimes. We don't show respect to people if they're not Christians. We think, well, they don't know the Lord. I don't respect them. Or, or they live lives that we, we find offensive. The things they do, we, we, we don't respect their behavior. That doesn't mean that we can't be respectful. In fact, you should be respectful to everyone as much as possible, at peace with everyone you should live. So I don't understand this being disrespectful to someone because they're not a Christian. And it's certainly, certainly in a marriage relationship. Now, doing so, treating someone with respect, living a life of purity and reverence, would win them over. They would win their husbands over by showing them the character of the Christian lifestyle. See, it's an opportunity to show Christian love. And when you refuse to do that just because someone doesn't agree with you, you miss out on an opportunity to show Christ. And when you don't show Christ, you can't expect them to know Christ. Amen? If you don't show Christ, how are they going to know Christ? And so, men, as we know, especially if you've read the book, Love and Respect, you know this, that men interpret respect and admiration as love. That's the very definition of love as far as they're concerned. And they thrive when they're respected. Men really appreciate respect. Not that women don't, but men truly appreciate being respected. And when wives refuse to lovingly submit, men feel disrespected and unloved. So how important it is for all of us to be respectful, but wives especially. Men are tempted, when they feel disrespected, to become harsh and inconsiderate with their wives. And so if a man is being harsh and inconsiderate, it's not an excuse But one of the ways to deal with that is for the wife to be respectful and show admiration. Again, that doesn't excuse bad behavior, but it assists the other person, the husband, in being the person that he should be, and hopefully he wants to be. You know, you can really, you know, it's like you got a balloon, right? You take a pin and you just pop the balloon. Like, it makes a loud noise and you think, oh, why did that happen? You know, you can really provoke someone very easily. And men can be provoked very easily in marriage when they feel disrespected. So why would you do that? Why would you do that to anybody, men or women? Why would you be disrespectful 
when you know that's not going to cause a good outcome. And so that's the first part of this teaching. Just, just be respectful. Live pure lives. The opposite of what they were saying was being taught in the church. Because you see what was happening. <clears throat> Wives were coming to Christ. Slaves were coming to Christ. People were coming to Christ. And they were finding this new sense of freedom and value. And some people were threatened by it. And so you can imagine a husband suddenly feeling as if his wife is changing and he doesn't like it. And so rather than deal with what's going on, he simply would say something like, oh, that church, they're teaching you to be disrespectful to me and not listen to me. They're, they're teaching you to defy me and not submit to me. And that, and that in some cases might have been true, but it shouldn't have been. And so Peter addresses this. And there's this other issue, and I want to handle this delicately because I don't want to... Uh, share this teaching in a way that objectifies women or makes it sound like women only have to be concerned about being beautiful, because that's hardly true. But as you can imagine, in the ancient world, part of that culture also understood that women presented themselves to be beautiful. Now, of course, that shouldn't surprise any of us. The beauty industry is huge in this culture today, okay? I'm sure that there are some men that spend money on product, but most of the product in terms of beauty products and things of that nature are purchased by women. And women like to be beautiful, and they like to uh, buy those products, and that's true today. I'm sure that was true then. And uh, this shouldn't be a surprise. It's not a necessarily a bad thing. But what he says about outward beauty versus inward beauty is important because of the contrast. Not that outward beauty isn't important or valuable— or that inward beauty is so much more important than looking nice on the outside. But when you compare the two, inward beauty is so much more important. Not that outward beauty isn't. And so what he says here in verses 3 through 4, and again, you can imagine some of the criticism that was being laid against the wives who had become Christians. You know, oh, since my wife goes to that church, she doesn't dress the same way anymore, or she you know, doesn't do her hair the same, you know, who knows what they were saying and what was being said as criticism against the women. And maybe some of the women started to dress more modestly, maybe. I don't know. But I know that he addresses this by saying this in verses 3 through 4. And this is really important today because so much of our culture looks at the outward for men and women. And let's face it, while that's marginally important, you can be a very attractive person and be very ugly on the inside. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll see some of these people in Hollywood, and they're obviously very beautiful people, men and women. They're very beautiful people, right? I mean, that's how they get into the movies. That's how they get the modeling gigs. That's why they're all over the cover of magazines. But then they open their mouths. Or the things they promote politically. And they can be the most beautiful people. And then the things they say, you think, ooh, you just got a little uglier in my eyes. So here's what we read in verses 3 and 4. Your beauty, again, speaking to women, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Notice, your beauty shouldn't come from those things. Not that those things are wrong or evil, just that that shouldn't be where your beauty comes from, okay? 
Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Again, no one's saying, you know, you can't comb your hair, you can't wear a nice dress. My goodness, no. This is about, if you're so superficial that when people look at your life, they say, oh yeah, she's beautiful, but that's the end of it. There's, there's nothing more, no, no character, no accomplishment, no anything other than just, you know, nice hair, nails, and makeup. Listen, that's, that's, that's not enough. That's not true beauty. That's not. And Peter makes that clear. Outward beauty, as we all know, is fading, and it should not be the most attractive thing about you. You know, I remember when I was in high school, there were some girls that, that was it, you know. They were pretty. Beyond that, you couldn't really say much. And uh, yeah, it really shouldn't describe Christian women. Uh, It's okay to be beautiful, just the question is, is, is that where it ends? And Peter addresses that. And he, and he mentions three things, because if our beauty is fading, it should not be the most attractive thing about you. We can agree, right? I mean, your qualities should be deeper than just skin deep. Uh, but there are three things he mentions. The first is braided hair. Now, this might be hard for us to understand, but braided hair at that time was interweaving your hair or wearing an elaborate hairstyle. Okay, hairstyles are not that elaborate anymore. They used to be much more so, I think, back in the 80s. Uh, but, but just say it this way. If you're known by your hairstyle, like nobody knows anything about you except, oh, she has great hair, that, that's kind of what Peter's addressing. And then you have gold jewelry. Now, gold jewelry has to do with accessorizing your outfit with ornate and precious metals. Again, nothing wrong with having jewelry. No one's saying that. But if you're known by, wow, did you see that ring? Did you see her necklace? See her earrings? And you know what's sad in the world today? That's what the whole world is all about. I mean, you look at what some of these people fixate on, right? I'd never watch those award shows, just to be clear. Red carpet. I could care less about those shows. But it's amazing how I'll read the news the next day, and all they're talking about is who was almost wearing their dress or something, or who was wearing this, or who was wearing... Who cares? I don't care about those things. But so many people apparently do. They really do. And Peter would say, braided hair, how you wear your hair, gold jewelry, the things you, the jewelry you wear, how you accessorize. And then, of course, fine clothes. I mean, everyone wears clothes, but fine clothes, well, that's these award shows. I don't know if that's necessarily even true. But fine clothes, dressing your body in is really about dressing your body in order to get the attention of others. Now, here's an interesting little test. This is true for men and women. When you put on your clothes to go to church or to go out or to go to work, is the motivation behind what you're wearing, oh, this is going to get everyone's attention? I mean, if you like an outfit and it looks good on you, great. No one's saying you can't wear that. But if the motivation behind the hair and, you know, the gold jewelry and the fine clothes is to look better than all of your friends at work or at school or to get the attention of men or others, you know, and sometimes women will dress in a way to make women envious and men interested. We need to be careful, Christian women. That should not really be said. 
especially of Christian wives. And so that is really what Peter's addressing. Not that these things are bad, but what's the motivation behind them? And as we've learned, outward beauty is fading. It really shouldn't be a part of our character to be so superficial as to use these things to get attention and bring attention to ourselves. That's, in essence, the definition of modesty. Modesty. Not necessarily using these things to get attention to yourself, but being modest. Now, inward beauty, let's talk about inward beauty. Inward beauty is unfading. The kind of beauty that's on the inside doesn't fade with age. It doesn't require all of that outward attention. It requires inward attention. As it says here in verse 4, Instead, your beauty should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. It's not saying the women should be quiet. Don't, don't read it that way. A gentle and quiet spirit. That's beautiful for anyone to have, not just women. A gentle spirit is a spirit of meekness. It's the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. A quiet spirit is someone who's peaceable. It's the opposite of rudeness and being troublesome. We can appreciate why that would be important. Remember, they were saying that the church was teaching women to be this way, and Peter's teaching the very opposite of that. And then finally, he talks about character, and, and look what he says. He says, which is of great worth in God's sight. Ultimately, our behavior should be approved of by God. We're not looking for the world to tell us what's right or what's wrong, or anyone else in the church for that matter. We're really looking for the Lord to approve of our behavior and our character. And so when we talk about character, we're talking about character that is valued by God as precious and priceless. And that's what Peter is telling Christian women. Make sure you put the first things first. Make sure that it isn't all about your outward beauty. Make sure it's about your inward beauty. Now, doing this would win these men over by showing them the beauty of the Christian lifestyle, not just the character, but the beauty of the Christian lifestyle. Outward beauty may get a man's attention, certainly, but inward beauty will keep it. Beauty that is skin deep will cause a man to look no deeper. And beauty that is in the heart will inspire a man to find its source. So I would say that this gives us a good perspective on what is most important when we talk about the character of women. We're going to talk about men in a minute as well. But for now, that helps us to really see things properly. Now, so that the women at this time could have an example to follow, he goes and he speaks about some examples of the holy women from God's word. And then we read in verses 5 and 6, For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now, that's very interesting, not to give way to fear. So let's break this down. These holy women in the Bible, of which Sarah is used as an example, put their hope and their trust in God and not in a man. I want you to rewind and look at that. Notice it says, 
For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope, not in their husbands, but put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. That is, they made themselves beautiful for their husbands, but they put their hope in God. You see, I think part of the problem that a lot of marriages have, and certainly there are problems on both sides, men and women, but part of the problem is when one or either of the spouses think that the other person is going to meet all their needs. So they put their hope in their spouse. They put their hope in their husband. They put their hope in their wife. And when the wife or the husband doesn't meet their expectations, problems ensue. But we put our hope in God. Husbands and wives, we put our hope in God. And by putting your hope in God, you're looking for God to do the work, and you honor him in the relationship knowing that he'll honor you. So they put their hope and their trust in God, not in man. They were determined to make themselves inwardly beautiful. That was their goal. Not just outwardly, but inwardly. They chose to be submissive to their husbands like Sarah with Abraham, and that wasn't always easy for her, certainly. It wasn't easy for any, any of the women in the Bible. They realized that this was the right way to live as wives, and so they did. It didn't mean that they didn't have influence, that they didn't have any say in the relationship. And they knew their place as wives, but husbands need to know their place as husbands as well. The relationship is based on mutual respect, as the Bible defines it. So these women are given this example. This is the example you're to follow. This is the right way to live as wives. And I find it incredibly interesting that at the end of this section, he says, you are her daughters, that is Sarah's daughters, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now let's think about this for a minute. We all have fears. We all have fears. In the context of what's being talked about here, though, you can imagine that one of the fears that a wife like Sarah in this relationship with Abraham would have had is that she's putting her trust in God, but she doesn't know whether she could trust her husband. That is, her husband's a man. He makes mistakes. He makes bad decisions. He proved that a number of times. She made some bad decisions, too. But one of the things that's really, really hard when you're submitting to someone is you have fears. You have anxieties about doing it. And when someone is fearful, they're not likely to submit. Now, there are clearly times where one can, one can see the forest for the trees. But, you know, I, I think clearly it must have been hard at times for, for some of these women who were fearful to follow their husbands. But they had to put their hope in God, not in their husbands. And that's a very difficult place to be. Now, this can happen if you have a boss, men or women. If you have a boss and you're dealing with a business owner and you feel as if it's a bad decision and you have to do what the boss says and you're fearful that the decision is not going to work out well. You, know, you have to put your hope and your trust in God knowing, I, I don't know, I don't really agree. But someone has to be in charge. And sometimes, hey, sometimes it doesn't work out the way the person thought it was going to work out. Sometimes those fears are realized. But 
At the end of the day, you don't give yourself over to fear. Notice it says, do not give way to fear. Fear is what would cause a woman to not listen to her husband, as you could imagine why. And what he's saying is, trust God and don't let your fears and anxieties cause you to be defiant and without submission. So you have to control your fear. We all do. Perfect love casts out fear. We have to put our trust in God and in one another, and that can be very challenging. And I think that's why Peter mentions it at the end of this section. So doing this in a marriage relationship as a wife would win the husband over by showing him the obedience of the Christian lifestyle. So by living this way, they would see the beauty of the Christian lifestyle, the character of the Christian lifestyle, the obedience of the Christian lifestyle, in the hopes that they would want to live the Christian lifestyle. And that was the whole point. That's the point that Peter is communicating. Now let's talk about husbands. And it is interesting that husbands are only given one verse in this section. If you look at the teachings that Paul gives from Ephesians 5 and Colossians uh, 3, There's much more teaching on this. But let's look. It's actually a lengthy verse, but this is what he has to say to husbands in verse 7. Husbands, in the same way. Be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. That's physically. Physically weaker. As the weaker partner. And as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, this is really interesting as well, because this is about being considerate. And I find it interesting. There there isn't a whole lot here said about other things, because I think that's enough. I think most men, you know, struggle with being considerate, sensitive. Be considerate to your wife. Paul mentioned this as well. It was the charge of every husband to care for his wife. That was his responsibility. But just like respect is a matter of the heart, love is a matter of the heart. And what Peter wants him to know is it's not enough to just, you know, take care of your wife. You have to be considerate. You have to be loving. You have to be caring. And of course, our behavior speaks louder than any words that we can possibly speak. Just like it does for wives, it does for husbands. Now, let's look at these words, considerate and the phrase living with your wife. Because it says here in the beginning of verse 7, be considerate as you live with your wives. Let's see what this actually teaches us. Well, first of all, considerate means to use general intelligence, that is to think, (laughs) to be thoughtful, to understand moral wisdom, that is to use your head, Okay, so when you're dealing with your wife, you're thinking, you're using wisdom, you're being considerate, and most of all, being sensitive. That is, you have sensitivity. You're thinking about what you're saying, the way you say it, how you say it. So it really comes down to, before you open up your mouth, give it some thought. Be considerate. And then, in addition to that, he says, live with your wives. So he says, be considerate as you live with your wives. So that's really two things, being considerate as you live with your wives. The the phrase live with your wives has to do with domestic association, sharing a home. It even has to do with intimacy and affection. It has to do with living as a married couple. So as you're living as a married couple, men, as it relates to your wives, be sensitive, thoughtful, 
wise. Consider it. It's interesting, but most women would be very happy if men could just get that one thing right. Not doing so, as we're told here, would hinder the prayers of a husband. And that would be because you'd be separating yourself from the heart of God. You see, if you're harsh, if you're inconsiderate, if you're, if you're not living properly in your home, you can't go to a prayer meeting and just be like, oh God, I, you know, you're praying. And meanwhile, in your heart, things aren't right. And it was the responsibility of men to pray for their families. Not doing so would hinder your prayers, separating you from the heart of God. Now, women interpret care and concern as love the way that men interpret respect and admiration as love. So women interpret care and concern as love, and they thrive when they're cared for. Women want to be cared for the way men want to be respected. Again, I refer you to Love and Respect, great book, because it really breaks down how men interpret love and how women interpret love. And isn't it interesting that Peter addresses this in this epistle directly? Now, when husbands refuse to lovingly sacrifice for their wives, women feel insecure. They feel unloved. And that's why Paul talks so much about making sacrifices. Husbands, make sacrifices for your wife. That's the idea. Not just submit, but sacrifice. Give yourself, give your life. Women are then tempted to challenge every decision their husbands make when they feel unloved. And then those husbands turn around and say, you're not being submissive. Well, the the wife can turn around and say, well, but you're not being considerate. And then it goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But someone's got to break the crazy cycle. Someone's got to stop and say, okay, I tell you what, I will be respectful. Can you be loving? And that's how marriage works. Very simply, but that's how it works. So treating your wife with respect, husbands, comes down to understanding our role. Understanding that the roles in marriage are different. Husbands or wives have different roles. They do. Not better or worse. Remember we talked about, backing up here for a minute, remember when we talked about uh, heirs, notice in verse 7, Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. An heir is someone that, it, that it's on equal terms. Just because women are physically weaker doesn't mean they're not equal. See, see that's part of what's contributed over the centuries to chauvinism and to that, that type of misogyny, I guess you would call it, where men just treat women badly. Because they're physically stronger sometimes in certain cultures, in many cultures, they don't feel the need to be respectful. But the Bible's teaching us that just because you're physically stronger, men, doesn't mean that you shouldn't treat women equally. That is, treat them with respect, equal respect, as heirs of the gift of life. And that's, in 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 essence, what he's saying. So men were not only to receive respect— but to show it to their wives as well. And when we look up the word respect, it means to value, to honor, to show deference or reverence. I like this, to be chivalrous. To be chivalrous. 
men should be chivalrous, that is, respectful of women. And when we talk about the weaker partner, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, clearly there are some women that are stronger than some men, but in general, when you look at the physicality of men and women, men are, are, are almost always stronger physically. Again, there are exceptions to this, but... And that's why, like in the Olympics and in sports, men compete with men and women with women. And you might think, well, you know, what if you took someone like Serena Williams and put him up against, you know, one of the, the men in tennis? But, you know, I, I actually was talking to someone recently, and I don't have all the facts on this, but there was some situation where they, were, they took, I don't know, a, a high-ranking tennis player against one of the highest-ranking female ten- tennis players. And the high-ranking player was maybe in the top 200, and he beat her easily. Because men just are physically more powerful. There's the, the, the miles per hour in which they serve, and they're physically dominant. There's just, there's just no way you can be on equal terms. That's why when you go to the Olympics, as men and women, you compete separately. Now, of course, the controversy in our society now is some people seem to think that those rules shouldn't apply. And I feel very badly for women's sports. Because men who are physically men who claim that they're women are still men and still physically stronger than most women. The majority of women. So how is that fair to women? But what we do know is that women are physically weaker. They lack the physical strength of a man. Okay, so what? There's plenty of things that women can do better than men. It's not a question of that. It's just a question of we're built differently. And thank God for that. But we're co-heirs, fellow recipients of God's gracious gift of eternal life. So men shouldn't look down on women. Women shouldn't look down on men. There's nothing wrong with being different. We're different. We're equal. And we're to love each other differently because we are built differently and we are designed differently. We need different things. And there's nothing wrong with that. Understanding biblical gender. There's only two genders. That's, a, that's a, an obvious fact, not a feel, a fact. Now, of course, not doing this, not living or treating your wife with respect, not living considerately with your wife. Listen, that would cause all kinds of problems in the marriage. Husbands in the ancient world were often little more than slave masters, and that's not right. Never was, never should be. Many cared little for their wives. They considered them personal property. They were like a notch above a slave. And that was wrong, and Peter addresses that. Paul addresses that. Paul and Peter both instruct husbands to serve their wives. Serve. That's a word that would have ruffled a few feathers. Serve your wife. And by the way, Peter was married. And I think that's what makes this an impactful teaching, because he was married and he knew how marital conflict affects personal devotion. And that's why I think he says it this way. He says, do these things so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And it makes sense. I mean, Peter's a husband. He knows if he's not living properly with his wife, then his prayer life and his spiritual life, all that's going to be out of sync. And that's true for women as well. And so we're given this last teaching here. We actually have one more on the subject of submission, which we'll get to next week, and that's really submitting to one another. But 
As it relates to marriage, this is submitting to your spouse. We see that husbands and wives have to submit to each other. You know, part of the reason marriage is in such a state today is because people don't understand this. They define marriage differently, and they try to live by rules that don't work. The reason marriage works is because God designed it, he established it, and he gave us the rules. He gave us the guidelines. And when we step outside of God's design for marriage, it should be no wonder that it doesn't work. And so I would encourage you, if you are married, certainly this is applicable. If you'd like to be married someday, this is applicable. I think that it's important for us to recognize, though, we always live in a way where we show respect to everyone. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these lessons, and we now ask in Jesus' name that you'd help us who are husbands, all those who are husbands, help us to be the kind of husbands that honor you, that our prayers may not be hindered. And for the wives here, Lord, I pray that all those who are here would, would honor you with their beauty and trust you and not be fearful and find it easy, an easy thing to submit to their husbands. That we might honor you in the marriage relationship and that that testimony would be one that the world responds to positively. And for those who are married to unbelieving spouses, may the, the character and the, the beauty of the lives of those uh, Christian spouses, may, may that so impact their unbelieving spouses that they would respect the beliefs in Christ that their spouses have and submit their own hearts and receive the gospel and be saved. Oh Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.